The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Planetary Radio is public radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and co-host, sometimes with Mari. And you can learn more about our guests and shows at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And this is privacy piracy. I think I neglected to say that. If you don't know our host, Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special last year, and they still play it. It's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. And she's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, and CNN, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and a lot of other shows. So to learn more, you can visit identitytheft.org. So let's get started, Mari. Oh, tonight we have a terrific show. I am so thrilled that I was able to uh, get this gentleman to join us. He has several books, and I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Bruce Schneer. He is an internationally renowned security technologist and author. You know, I was reading uh, one of his op-ed pieces recently about security breaches, and it just touched my soul. And I said, this is the man that I have to get on to talk to us about security. We've been talking about privacy and security, and this is a guy who knows about them both. Um, He's described by The Economist as a security guru. So I love gurus. And and when people want to know how security really works, they turn to Bruce. And his first bestseller, Applied Cryptography, explained how the science of secret codes actually works. And it was described by Wired Magazine as the book that the National Security Agency wanted never to be published. His book on computer and network security, called Secret and Lies, was called by Fortune magazine a jewel box of little surprises you can actually see. And the book that I just finished reading is called Beyond Fear. It tackles the problems of security from the small to the large, from personal safety, like you and I, to crime, to corporate security, to national security, all about 9-11 and everything. Um, Bruce also publishes a free monthly newsletter called Cryptogram, which I signed up for. And he is the founder and CTO of Counterpane Internet Security, Inc. So you can you know, learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org uh, forward slash privacy privacy and also at schneer.com and counterpane.com. I'm thrilled to uh, have him join us all the way from the Midwest. Bruce, are, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Oh, Bruce, thank you so much. I, am, I, was, I have to tell you that when reading your book, I could really understand it. And for a security guru and a technologist, it's, it's great because I get some of these books that I don't know what I'm reading. So I want to tell you I really uh, enjoyed reading this. Let me ask you a couple things here. Um, I noticed in the book it talks about some, tell us true or false, if this is true or false. Searching kids and grandmas actually improves airport security, but arming pilots makes us all less secure. True. True. Tell us about that. Well, there are two separate issues, uh, and one is uh, airport security searching. And certainly a few years ago, there was a, a big push towards profiled searching, that we would search either Middle Eastern males more frequently because they were believed to be the enemy. Or more recently, we would hand out uh, trusted traveler cards 
uh, a card that you could get, which basically says there's been a background check done on me. I'm okay. Let me go through airport security quick, quick, more quickly. And the idea would be to create really two paths to security, the easy way and the hard way, and you know, not don't waste time searching grandmas and kids, but search people who are more likely to be to be terrorists, and and that's the idea. Uh, I think the idea is very very flawed. If you think about the trusted traveler card, and, and right now uh, there is one. There's a company that that sells them. I think the air, it's near Orlando Airport, and they might right. be other airports. Uh, for I think seventy dollars a year, you can apply for a card, and a background check is done. Uh, and, and if you get the card, you can now go through airport security quicker. Uh, that is, if you think about it, a $70 uh, service for terrorists. Please let me know if the FBI is on to me. Right. <laughs> and wh- what you do whenever you make an easy way and a hard way through security, whatever it is, you invite the bad guys to take the easy way. So if I was a terrorist leader, right, I have everyone apply for the card, and the five that get it would go on the mission. If uh, I know that uh, you are searching you know, Middle Eastern-looking males, I will find Caucasian-looking females. Right. Uh, and we saw that in, in Chechnya, where women uh, brought the bombs on the airplanes that, that exploded, I think, a couple of years ago, because women aren't searched as, as much. Right. Uh, you know, we saw that in, uh, in London, where the bombers were, weren't obviously Middle Eastern-looking. We know that Richard Reed was Jamaican and British. We know that uh, Jose Padilla was Hispanic. This notion that there is a, a profile that we can target is, is just naive. And by trying to do so, we actually make it easier for the bad guys. So I believe, and the math bears this out, that random screening, right, we're going to screen every 20th person, I'm making this up, that comes through security, we're going to screen them better. That is more efficient than saying, we're going to screen everybody who looks like this. Right. Well, what kind of profiling do they have in, in Israel that seems to be so effective? They do profiling on airlines, right? Right. But the, what they do is, is not physical profiling, it's psychological profiling. Right, What right. they do is phenomenally effective. Because they don't profile you based on you know, what you look like, how you're dressed. They profile you on how you act. Uh, they ask you questions. Right. They, they look at your story. They, they spend a lot of time, and what they're looking for is someone that just looks fishy. They are trained to look for someone who's acting suspicious. Uh, the great example of this in the U.S. is in, I think it was the year 1999, uh, when uh, border security caught somebody trying to go over the border from uh, British Columbia into Washington State, and he was going to blow up, uh, I think, the L.A. airport. I think it was like New Year's. Right, I read that in your book, yeah. Right, and, and, and the border guard, if you listen to her story, he, what, what she says is the guy was acting hinky. Right. Now, hinky is a meaningless word. Right? It's not something you can profile on, you know, check his hinky quotient. <laughs> it, what it is, right. what hinky means is her sixth sense that there's something not right here. Yeah. And there was something not right. His, his, his trunk of his car is filled with explosives. That's the kind of... Smart profiling, it's behavioral profiling. It's not racial profiling, right. it's not sexual profiling, it's not ethnic profiling. It, that's what works. And, you know, unfortunately, terrorism is not limited to a particular type of person. Terrorists come in all shapes and all sizes and all colors. Right. And the sooner we recognize that, I think the safer we are. Now, you were talking a little bit about, you know, the other half of the question was about arming pilots make us less secure. What, what do you think about that? I, I'm not a fan of arming pilots because I want a reinforced cockpit door, and I want the pilots on one side of it, and I want the, uh, the passengers on the other. And I don't want a situation where the pilot is, is either going out or whether he is, or he is using his gun to defend the airplane. I think the, the gun is, is a misplaced security measure. I would much rather see the effort put into the cockpit door and that separation. Right. And, you know, adding guns to a mix, uh, there's more chance of accident, there's more, there's more chance right. of problems, and I don't see it adding a lot of security. Reinforcing the cockpit door was a, a wonderful thing that was done after 9-11. The air, airlines fought it for decades. They finally gave in. Uh, that has given us a lot of security. Actually, uh, that and teaching passengers to have to fight back have been the only two things that have improved airline security since 9-11. Yeah. 
Okay, so I got another one. How about true or false on this? Since we just uh, went through some voting recently. Um, replacing paper ballots with computerized voting machines is a horrendously dangerous idea. True or false? It's more complicated than that. It's more or less true. Uh, what we want is a, a, a voter-verifiable paper trail. So what we want is a piece of paper that the voter can look at and say, yes, that's my vote. So I'll give you an example of the way we vote in, in Minnesota. It's an optical scan ballot. So you fill out a, uh, a paper, you know, blackening in ovals like you're taking a standardized test, mm-hmm. and then you walk up with your ballot, which is that, 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 that paper, to a, a reader. And uh, your paper's covered by a cover, so the, 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 uh, the, voting, uh, the, the voting judges can't see it. Right. And, and, and then your, your paper goes into the reader, and then the reader flags that, yes, it was, it was, it was tabulated correctly. You know, there were no overvotes, there were no undervotes. Right. And then that paper drops into a box. Uh-huh. So that is a computerized system, basically, right? There's a computerized reader. Right. But there is a voter-verifiable paper trail. If for some reason, at the end of the day, someone says, hey, you know, these votes aren't tallying right, the machine isn't working, something's fishy, you can always go back to that paper. Uh-huh. Right? The worry comes when you use an ATM-like machine. Right. Where you, you push a touchscreen... And you vote that way. There's no paper trail. There's no way to go back and do a recount. You have to trust what the computer says, and, and there's no way to verify that. That's what you, when you have problems. And we've seen lots of problems with these machines in the, in the last several elections. Sure. Uh, you know, some of them are believed to be malicious, and, and there's, no, there's been no smoking gun. Many of them are, are seem obviously just to be glitches, right? You push, you try to vote for one person, and then you actually vote for another. I mean, I remember a precinct, and these are a lot, a lot of local elections, uh, where they eventually figured out that the votes were reversed. You know, someone figured it out. They didn't, right. we would never would have known. Right. There was one, one machine where nobody voted for a certain candidate, including the candidate's mother who lived there, which is just <laughs> unreasonable. There's another machine where one candidate got negative number of votes, which is impossible. So these are all mistakes. And the problem with mistakes is, well, they happen, and that's okay, but you need to be able to recover from them. Right, so right. The benefit of a voter-verifiable paper trail, so it is a paper ballot, even though it might be read electronically, so you can always fall back on that paper. If you remember Florida in 2000, people were looking at the, the punch cards and the chads. Forget that. You want a piece of paper where someone puts an X in front of a name. Right. Well, I think our voting system that's, that's rather new, I don't think it does a paper trail, does it? No. It, California oh, has oh, recently changed oh, their okay. rules. Yeah. They, they've gotten rid of uh, a lot of their strictly electronic ballots in favor of these. Oh, yeah, I did they finally see. recognized. Yeah, there was something like you did the, you have the little turnstile thing that you turn and then you, then you push a button. But apparently on the, on the left side, there is a paper ballot that's going through so that, that it is verifying. So, right. Yeah, and, and we, we just saw said this that. in some of the recounts in the last election. Yeah. You know, the recount had the exact same total because... You couldn't do a recount. All you could do is look at the memory in the machine. You know, and, and I remember people saying after the last election, after the 2000 election, you know, we secure multi-million dollar electronic transfers. Why can't we secure voting machines? Right. It, it's a subtle difference. The reason is for multi-million dollar electronic transactions, you can have an audit trail. You can roll back a transaction. Uh, for voting, it needs to be anonymous. That anonymity requirement makes it a much harder security problem than a credit card, than an ATM machine, than right. all those computerized systems we're used to. And if you go to an ATM machine and you push some buttons and you get twice as much money or half as much money, right. and after a week, the bank's going to call you. It's going to be fixed. Or you're going to call the bank. <laughs> well, it depends if you get more or less. Right. Right. But, 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 there, but there will be a way to fix that. Right. In voting, there isn't that. There can't be that mechanism. Right. Because anonymity is one of the requirements of, of the United States voting. Now, that doesn't have to be a requirement. There are still cantons in Switzerland where votes are taken in the central square by raising your hand. So, right. so, and without a private vote, without a secret ballot, a lot of things are easier. Right. We had passed, um, they gave us a number, like a four numbers, that went with our name. And so once you... You, once you checked in, you got a number, and then you had to take that number and you had to input the number into the voting machine. That's how it worked. Oh, that's so there was, yeah. So there was some kind of verifiable that. Yeah, this but that won't be an audit trail because if they can actually detach that number to you and your vote, they could. 
Yes, no, they sure. Can't. I don't believe they can. No, if you think well, about it, they can attach that number to you and your vote. They can know how you voted. Yeah. And that and that is against against all the voting rules. Yeah, I have to see what happened because I I was thinking how interesting that was because I that was fairly new that they did this. They that you get this four numbers and then you put the four numbers in and then then that goes with your vote. And then, of course, yeah, that the, the, also goes with your But the numbers might be given randomly and anonymously. The it numbers might not be attached to your name. Your name I mean, because you saw that in absentee ballots. But your name co- pops up on the screen, Bruce. Doesn't mean it's saved. Okay. okay. And, I, and I don't know the details. Well, but, I will find but, out. But, uh, but I'm reasonably <laughs> sure that the government doesn't know how you voted. Okay. I'm reasonably sure of that. Well, this is, this who is still knows? America. Yeah, well, well, well that's what, that, that gets to the next true or false I want to ask you. Okay, that's the national ID cards will significantly weaken national and personal security, and most ID checks are virtually worthless. True well, or false? Well, true, but they're two very separate issues. I mean, let's, okay. sort of, let's sort of look at ID checks, right? Okay. I, I see them everywhere, and near as I can tell, they check that I have an ID, right. which I'm not sure why that's interesting. Right. Everyone has an ID. All the 9-11 terrorists had an ID. Right. You know, having a guard say, yep, you've got an ID, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't make me any safer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in a sense, I, I think it makes you less secure because right. you're taking, I mean, you used to have a doorman in a building, which is a guy who would be there and just look for suspicious things. So you've, you've replaced a smart guy looking for suspicious things with a dumb guy who naively checks IDs. Right. So I think that we're actually losing security there. That for the for the same money, we could we could be doing better. So I think ID checks are largely worthless. Uh, certainly, airplane ID checks, they they don't make us more secure. The reason we have them, I think, is actually interesting. In the, over the decades, airlines have resisted every single security measure the government has tried to uh, impose on it, uh, from the uh, the X-ray machines and the metal detectors. Uh, to positive bag matching, which they still resisted, to reinforcing the cockpit door, which they only accepted for 9-11. The only measure the airline said, sure, we'll do that, was the photo ID check. And the reason is actually simple. It stops an airline problem, the resale of non-refundable tickets. Uh-huh. They were able to stop that business cold and blame it on the government. Right. So they were all in favor of that. So that's ID checks. Right. Uh, now, there was a big debate in the country about the national ID card. In fact, we are going to have one. Uh, Representative Stenson Brenner uh, basically snuck it through uh, last year, early, I think it was last year, on a must-pass defense appropriations bill. Even though all debate is against it, uh, he, he got it through, and we are going to have it. Uh, you know, he, he positions that as, as a security anti-terrorism measure. It's really an anti-immigration measure. I mean, he's kind of a xenophobe, but, but that's, you know, that's what's happening. Uh, you look at national ID cards, and uh, I don't think they, uh, they, they make us safer at all. Uh, the proponents of it focus on the card, a single hard-to-forge card. But, but the, a national ID system is much bigger than that. And if you start looking at it, you see that a card is a small piece. You need the rules of issuance of the card, who issues the card. You need the database behind the card. You need the verification procedures that a guard can use to verify that the card is valid. Revocation procedures, update procedures. What happens if you lose a card? Uh, and you start looking at this entire system. And I got, I've given hour-long talks just on this. And you see dozens of points of insecurity. A- and they worry me. Sort of in general, if you think about it, as identity documents become more valuable, they become more, enti- it's more enticing to steal them. Exactly. So, so my fear is if we have a single national ID card, that identity theft becomes a much more serious crime. Right? Right. It's not going to go away. The, uh, a hard-to-afford card issued by the federal government isn't going to magically make ID theft go away. ID theft is, is much more pervasive than that. Right. But right. it will make ID theft a much nastier crime because the criminal, once he has it, now can do more with it because it's a much more trusted, much more valuable card. Now, so I'm, in some ways, and by adding security, we are reducing our security. It's a little bit of a, of a judo move right, going on. Right. So in this national ID card, do they want to put biometrics in there too, don't they? Yeah, well, uh, ID cards currently have biometrics, right? They have your picture. Right, right. That's, right. A, that's a biometric. Right. Uh, there's thought of adding more, right? You're right. going to add a fingerprint. Right. Uh, they want to add a chip on the card. Right. And the chip will contain... 
uh, a digital representation of perhaps the photograph, perhaps a fingerprint, you know, maybe something else. Right. So, yes, there is an idea to make the card machine-readable to, uh, to facilitate uh, passing through with right. the card. You know, all, all that will do is increase the amount of surveillance. And then how about RFIDs? I mean, there was a thought, wasn't there some talk about putting radio frequency identifiers yeah. in there as yes. well, like and, the passport? And, and they are, that is likely to happen, although there is a lot of backlash from the states on this national ID card. Right, right. Uh, Center stuck it, snuck it through, but of course there's no funding for it, and, it's, and the states are required to fund it themselves, and they've been pushing back. So while it is law, you know, it remains to be seen uh, when it will happen and what it will look like. But right now the plan is to include RFID chips. And, and for those listeners who don't know, uh, these are contactless chips. Uh, they're read uh, by distance, similar to, let's, let's say, a Bluetooth device. And you'll see them in automatic road toll collection systems. Right. Uh, you see them on cows, mm-hmm. for, for, done, for, done for, uh, for inventory control. Uh, more and more retailers, Walmart is going to add RFID chips to their products. Right. They can do basically remote inventory. Right. The, the worry about RFID chips is that they, they can be queried remotely and surreptitiously. So the worry is if you have an, uh, an ID card in your wallet with an RFID chip, you could walk by a reader and now somebody knows who you are. And that could be a retailer, you know, when you walk into a store. Right, like Minority Report. Like right. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, and that's something very un-American about going into a store and suddenly having the store know your salary, right? Because the identity of the RFID chip now gets tied to all the back-end marketing databases by right. ChoicePoint and other companies. Right. And suddenly your entire buying profile is known by the store as soon as you walk in. And, now, and your credit score, too, probably. <laughs> right, and your credit score and maybe your police record. Right. You know, sort of all of these things that, that we as Americans really don't hand out to everybody. Uh, so you can, imagine, you can imagine the police doing that you know, as you walk into a stadium or a concert hall. Well, you can imagine criminals doing that, maybe deciding who they want to mug. Right? They sit there with a reader until they find someone has a lot of money. You uh, know, in we third had... world countries, you can imagine people kidnapping Americans exactly. based on that. Well, we even had a Senator Simidian from California, who's a California senator, who um, told he had introduced some legislation to, to kind of safeguard these RFIDs. And um, they found out that the the badge that the legislators in California were wearing had RFIDs on them. And when you went into the room to vote, there were RFID readers in the doorway. So they could tell every time you went in and out of that door. And he exposed that in California. That just happened last year. Right. So, I mean, it, it's not like, oh, this is future, you know. No, no, no. I mean, this is happening right now. And, uh, we, and they put it on kids in, in, in Mountain View or somewhere up in Northern California. Yes, they, there's they, a school that right. is using RFID right. to, to track kids Well, they're school. not doing it anymore because the parents were up in arms. But, yeah, yeah they try yeah. to do that. It's exactly. actually, it's surprisingly often you find new and invasive anti-privacy measures, first used against, I'm going to use the phrase marginal populations, populations that have fewer constitutional rights. So it's school children. Right. It's, uh, it's, it, it's prison inmates. It's uh, you know, people in a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's soldiers. Right. People who have, because of their position, either soldiers, their, their, their career, or children, just their station in life, fewer constitutional rights. You very often see these technologies used against them first and then migrate into the general population, often first in in blue-collar workers or people on government assistance. Right. It kind of just sneaks up on us, right, Bruce? It does. And, and, you know, there's nothing sinister about a lot of this. I mean, a lot of people paint this as as a, a sinister power grab. I think this is really just the natural flow of technology. Now, it, which, which means that if, we have to, if we're going to stop it, we need to pass laws. Right? This is not something that is, that is happening because there are evil people in power. You take, put the good people in power, it won't happen. It's happening because technology favors intrusive technologies. And if right. we care, we need to pass laws limiting their use, like limiting the use of RFID tags on children. Or, you know, and that's exactly what Senator Simidian was trying to do, and they were trying to paint him as one who is anti-technology, and he's in the Silicon Valley, and he's not anti-technology. You know, he's basically saying, hey, you know, this 
the technology itself is neither good nor bad, basically. I mean, it can be used for good or bad, but what we have to do is put in the safeguards and make sure that when we say we're using it for one purpose, we don't use it for another, or we have some transparency so people know, okay, this is being collected and that's okay and I, and I agree to it. Right. So, All technology has value. Nothing's a panacea. Yeah. Well, let's, let's find out a little bit about how did you get to be such a security guru? <laughs> you know... And it's actually sad that security guru is the most common thing attached to my name when I search on Google. And, and <laughs> I think I mean, it's kind of neat. I like it. It, it is. I mean, it, it's. I like to think it's because I speak about these complex issues in ways that are understandable. Exactly. My, my career has been basically an endless series of generalizations. I started out doing mathematical security cryptography. Yep. And then I branched. I, mean, I generalized into computer security. And network security, because I realized that the math is only as good as, as the things around it, the computer systems and the networks around the math. And very often, you know, the, the math is good, but the system is broken because of the computers. Right. So I started writing about that. And then I, I further generalized more into general security, and that's for, for a couple of reasons. One, because it's really hard to find a security system that doesn't involve computers these days. Right. Right. Airline security is right. computers. Everything's computers. Right. Home security, is, everything is computers. ID cards, it's computers. And also because the methodologies that we in the community have invented for computer security, the ways of thinking, the ways of looking at security as a system, are actually applicable to all security. And what I try to write in Beyond Fear is to show, I mean, the, the, my title for the book in my head is How to Think About Security. I wrote a book to explain to everybody how to think about security, how you can approach a security problem, whether it's a burglar alarm for your house, whether it's you know, wearing body armor, whether it's invading foreign countries, whether it's a national ID card or some corporate security question, that the, that, that the systems, that the ways of thinking are the same for all of those questions. And you can, by studying security, at all levels, uh, you know, natural security, looking at how insects secure their hive. You can learn things that you can apply in other domains. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want to inter- reintroduce you now for anybody who's driving by and listening to this exciting guy here. We are talking with a security guru, and I Wait, love that, by the way. Secu- let me do it. Bruce Schneier. Okay, Bruce Schneier. Thank you very much. And Bruce Schneier is a security expert, and he is an author of several books. And today we're especially talking about his one of his newest books, Beyond Fear. So let's go about that. What I really liked in your book is you talked about the, the five questions. I think it's five, right? The five yes, questions. Five steps. The five steps, or, and I saw them as questions that you need to ask yourself no matter what kind of a security issue we're talking about. So let's talk about first something that everybody here that can, can relate to, which is like a security system for your house. We've got one at our house, okay? So what are the five questions that I need to ask about, about that to see if I'm doing the right thing? Well, let me, let me step back because the five questions can, can, can be a bit, bit detailed. Okay. Basically, security is a trade-off. Right? You get, you're giving up something, and you're getting something in return. In, in the case of a home burglar alarm, you're giving up money. Right? It costs something to install it. You know, it's probably some annoyance to have it installed. And then you're also giving up the, the time, the convenience, the, the, the ease, in order to actually engage the thing, turn it on and off all the time. Now, I know people have burglar alarm systems that never turn it on. So while they're willing to pay the cost to install it, it turns out the day-to-day operational costs, which wasn't money, it was just convenience, turned out to be too high. So you're comparing that with the security you get right. once you have the alarm. And, right, and that depends on several things. Right? It'll depend on the neighborhood you live in. Right. It'll depend on you know, how much expensive stuff you have. It'll depend, do you, do you live alone, do you have a family? You know, some people, they're fine if they live alone with no security, but as soon as they get a, you know, get a family, they think, you know, I need to protect myself. Or do you have a dog? <laughs> or, and a dog is another trade-off, because Lord right. knows a dog, uh, <laughs> my dog costs a lot. Right. You've got to walk him twice a day. Right. right. You get security, but of course there are other benefits, too. Right. The, so security is inherently a trade-off. And what, what I did in, my, in this five-step process, which is in the book, and I give it in a bunch of examples, is to pull the decision process apart. Because the problem I saw, especially in national security issues, 
you know, should we have an ID card, should we fingerprint foreigners, that people were responding from their gut. They were responding quickly and emotionally. And the way to rationally discuss this is to slow the process down. So you and I might disagree on whether we should have a home burglar alarm, but it's interesting to figure out where do we disagree. You know, do I just not care that I have to engage it every day? Do I, you know, let's say, make less money than you and think it's too expensive? Mm-hmm. Or maybe do I have you know, a wife and two kids, and I'm more concerned of my, with their safety than you are concerned with, with your safety? Or maybe we live in different neighborhoods. So the process was really intended to give people a common language to talk about security decisions so they could figure out where the areas of disagreement were. Because we were at a point where people were talking past each other. Right. And that, you know, especially, you know, you talk about arming airplane pilots. I mean, you mentioned guns, and all rational debate stops immediately. Right, right. And, and there should be a way that we can engage and decide, is this a good idea or not? Right. Well, yeah, and you're taking these these steps and looking at them logically and emotionally. Like, if, if peace of mind is more important than money to you, then you go with it, right? I mean, in terms of certain things, like a security system in your house. If you want a security system and you still live in a good neighborhood, but it gives you peace of mind, and you're willing to take that extra two minutes when you leave the house and when you come in the house to turn it on, on and off, that's the trade-off, right? Yeah, and it's actually very interesting, because security is both a feeling and a reality. I mean, right. there are two separate things going on. Right. You could feel secure even if you're not secure, and you can be secure and not feel secure. So, you know, I'm left with a very complicated issue. Am I supposed to make you actually secure even though you might not feel it? Or should I make you feel secure even though you might not be it? Now, I'm a security technologist, right? My, my goal is to make you be secure regardless of what you think. I don't care what you think. Right. But, but in, in a lot of ways, that's a bad way of looking at it. Right. There's something I call security theater, which is security that looks good but does nothing. Give you an easy example. In the months after 9-11, there were National Guard troops in airports. You saw them after, right. the, uh, the, the, after the security checkpoints. Right. Uh, they were carrying those big-looking guns. Those guns had no bullets. <laughs> right. Those guns were there. Right. That was, that was, that's what I call security theater. Now, right. as a security professional, I say, isn't that stupid? But if you think about it a little more carefully, you, you realize in the months after 9-11, Americans were afraid to fly. Right. Uh, we were very scared that putting, you know, a, basically a guy in a uniform with a fake gun makes people feel better, helps the economy go. Uh, it's a perfectly rational thing to do, even though from a security perspective it makes no sense. From the larger perspective, it might. And that's a very important point, that security decisions are very often not about security. They're about other things. And when you see a security decision you don't understand, right? When you see guards in airports with with guns with no bullets, you've got to step back and say, what else is going on around here, right? You know, when you see, oh, I don't know, you know, the, the Bush administration misleading people to invade Iraq. You've got to step back and say, well, what's really going on? It's not about security. What is it really about? And, and very often you can figure out the real reasoning why these decisions are made. They're not irrational, but they're just irrational from the narrow perspective of security. Well, I think that's why the name of your book is so so important because it's called Beyond Fear, and a lot of this is about fear. And... and even getting us scared about certain things, like, okay, we need to have a national ID card because it's secure, it's going to make you secure, it's going to save us from terrorists, it's not necessarily going to do that, but it, it addresses that issue of fear, correct? Right, and, and people will make bad decisions when scared. I mean, you could look at sort of the whole gamut of stuff that the government is doing against terrorism and, and understand it in terms of you know, their perspective. Uh, if you're an elected official, if you think about it, it's in your best interest to, uh, to take the problem more seriously than it deserves. You know, for example, if you spend less money on security than, I don't know, the other party, and, and you're wrong, you know, your career's over, right? You didn't keep America safe. If you spend more money than necessary, you can say, well, look, you know, we kept America safe. So there's a propensity for doing more rather than less, for overdoing it rather than underdoing it. There's also a propensity for visible security versus invisible security. If you're an elected official, you want to be able to point to a big program and say, I did that, whether it's a national ID card 
or fingerprinting foreigners, you know, or something big. Uh, funding the CIA, right? That happens in secret. You get no credit for it. Hiring Arabic translators. I, you don't, it isn't the same sort of high visibility thing you'll get uh, than, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, searching bags in subways. Right, right. right. ID checks in buildings. And, and there's a third... Uh, how about the NSA surveillance? No, there's a third propensity, <laughs> that, that spending money on recovery is better than spending money on preparedness. And this is interesting. You could use Katrina as an example, even though it's a national disaster instead of a terrorist disaster. Right. That sp- if, you sp- if you spend money reinforcing the levees and there's no hurricane, you feel like you've wasted the money. Even worse, if you spend money replacing the levees and the hurricane happens on the other guy's, uh, when the other guy is in, in power, he gets the credit. Right. right. You do way better as a politician holding the money back than lavishing it on New Orleans after the fact. Now, this isn't smart, the smart way to do it. But if you are a politician, these are your propensities. Now, I'm not saying all politicians did this, but that is a natural tendency you'd have to fight. Well, a lot, you know, people don't really spend a lot of money on security unless they have to. Don't you find that to a great extent? I mean, even when you look at, like, all these security breaches that have been going on, Right? I mean, it, they were going on before our California law came into effect, our security breach law. I mean, we know that. I mean, when I testified in Congress, I heard Choice Point talk about it and Axiom and LexisNexis. But then, of course, when they had to because of the law, then, then, you know, then they disclose at least, you know, and they're doing some other things to remedy the situation as best as possible. But isn't it true that, you know, security is always, like, low on the totem pole with many, many companies and the government, right? Well, it, again, it depends on what the meta decision is. I mean, right. Remember, security is made, security is made for non-security reasons. If you are a company and uh, you are uh, entrusted with, you know, personal data, your data and my data, right. uh, the company's not secured very well because it's not his data. I mean, what does a company care? The, the effects of losing it are an, ex- an externality, use an economic term. Right. to that company. So, of course, they're going to underspend because they're spending what's commensurate with their risk. People, people care about security commensurate with their own risk. You know, people buy good locks on their doors if they think they're living in a bad neighborhood. They buy bars to their windows. They buy burglar alarm systems. They buy it when they're scared. You know, it's a, I have a funny story from a uh, burglar alarm salesman I was talking to. He would say whenever someone would call him into the house to price a burglar alarm, he would ask, who got robbed? Because invariably, some friend, some neighbor, some relative got robbed, and that's why this home is installing a burglar alarm. Right, exactly. So, so people do respond to the threat. The, when they're spending less money than we think they should, logically, it's often because the cost of the security failure is being borne by somebody else. And, and any theft is a great example of that. Right. Big company has a database of all of our information. Right. Right. If big company loses that data, that's not big company's problem. It's our problem. We're the victims of identity theft. Right. So the real cost of that breach is borne by us. Yet, at the same time, we expect the cost of securing it to be borne by the company. Well, that's not going to work. Right? Companies are not public charities in America. They're capitalist institutions. If we expect them to secure our data, we need to either one, do one of two things. Make a law that they have to do it or they'll be fined or go to jail. Right? Raise the cost of not doing it. Right. Or allow us to sue them for losing our data. Same thing. Raise the cost of not suing it, of not doing it. Right? Security is a trade-off. Cost versus benefit. If you want more security, you have to raise the cost of not doing it. Well, yeah, with these, you know, with the security breach laws, and especially the ones that are pending right now, um, they're really trying to water all of these laws down so that they that these companies won't have to lose money by, you know, having being embarrassed that you know one million secu- social security numbers and names were disclosed. I mean, that's one of the things is that our California law and other states have followed suit so that it is a cost to them of embarrassment. It is a cost to them for their stockholders if they have to disclose that they had a security breach. So what they're trying to do is have the disclosure be such that it's in the, um, you know, in, in the 
reasonableness of the of the minds of the company themselves to disclose whether there was a reasonable risk of harm or not. Right, and you see this. This, this is, and this is again, you know, this is what happens, right? The, the 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 agenda of the corporations is to water down that law so it's less effective. It's less effective anyway. And as you said, it has to do with embarrassment. I mean, to me, this is security through public shaming. We are trying to. I mean, let, let me take the model. We're trying to increase the cost of not securing data by making a law that says if you do lose someone's data, you have to publicly announce it. And you will be shamed, right? You will lose money. You will lose customers, shareholders, stock value, whatever, right. because of embarrassment, because of public shaming. Right. Now, that only works if the media goes along with it, right? You know, we, there's no public shaming if, I'm again, making this up, Wells Fargo announces a security breach and nobody reports it and nobody knows about it. There's right. minimal public right. shaming. Right. So the problem is, is an attenuation effect. The first company that caught in this law was ChoicePoint. Right. And there was an enormous amount of press. They lost a huge amount of stock value, a, a lot of public shaming. It did great good. Uh, then there was another and another and another, and now they're like four or five a week, and the press isn't even writing about them. So the public shaming now has less effect because it's, it's commonplace. It's no longer a, a stigma to lose data. I mean, now the Veterans Administration you know, lost the personal data on what? 27 million guys? 27 million people. Right. You know, if somebody loses a million social security numbers, the, your editor is going to say, yawn, I'm not going to write about that. Give me something big. Right. So, so the law, uh, unfortunately, is not nearly as effective as it was when it was first passed because the public shaming isn't as great anymore. And not only that, when when the feds right now are trying to not only change the security breach law, but to disallow any pro- private right of action. So sure. if you don't have the right to sue, like what you were talking about, that you either have some big cost or you have a law that someone can sue you, you know, if there's no ability to sue or there's no right to sue, then, you know, this isn't going to go away. We're going right. to continue to and, have these security breaches. And, and understand the lobbyists, understand this. That's why they're trying to sneak that in. Right. right. They, they get the fact. That they need to make sure that their the companies are not culpable, that are not liable for the mishandling of data. But I tell you, there is no other solution. You know, even even more important, even if we solve this, identity theft isn't going away. Right? Identity theft is is a problem for two major reasons. One, personal information is very easy to steal, and two, it is very valuable once you steal it. Uh, we are only working on part one, right? Making it harder to steal, making companies secure it better. It's, it's essential to solve this problem that we work on part two. Personal information has to become less valuable to use. Although, as long as it's valuable to a criminal, it will be stolen. And number three, I think, is that these companies that issue credit like candy that don't do verification and authentication also are really causing this because even if all of my information is in the hand of the criminals, if the companies are doing their job, they won't issue credit. That's right, and, that's, and that falls into making this data harder to use. Right. And you go to Europe, and you find that getting credit cards is not as easy as in the U.S. I mean, in the U.S., the credit card industry likes the fact that you could open up a random magazine, pull out an application page, fill it out, send it in, and a card comes in the mail. It's just like magic. You know, that doesn't happen in Europe. And, and the industry might not like that, but that is a way to make us safer. Exactly. Let's go back to those. Um, I wanted to introduce you again, and I want you to say your name again so I don't mess it up. Bruce? Bruce Schneier. Rhymes with higher is easy. Okay, Bruce Schneier. All right. He is a security guru and an author, and he is also um, a uh, the CIO of um, Counterpain, and you can find out more about him at counterpain.com as well. Let's go back to the um, the questions that we should ask in any security situation. You kind of gave a little bit background about how there's trade-offs, but can you go into those questions and give us some samples? Uh, I do them. In, I do them generally. Okay. Uh, there. Well, gonna one go- of them you have. Step one is what assets are you trying to protect? So let's let's look at that in terms of well. You know, after 9-11, you want to do one of those? I mean, that's something everybody can relate to and get scared about, and you talked a lot about it in your book. Right, and, and that's the first question to ask is, what are we actually protecting here? And, right. And it's surprising how often that's not answered. You know, and the answer will dictate everything else. You're protecting diamonds or donuts. 
Right. Uh, you know, terrorism is, is a very complicated one. Yeah. We're not protecting airplanes, not protecting the Super Bowl. We're protecting, in a sense, our psyche. You know, terrorism is a crime against, uh, against our, our emotions, against our brain. It's, 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 a, it's causing terror. And when you think of it that way, you start realizing that defending the targets is only a, a minor piece of security, that, that you really need much more. So, so step one is, is, you know, what, what are you trying to protect? You know, what are you, what are you defending against? Are you trying, worried about uh, burglars into your home? Are you worried about kidnappers into your home? That sort of thing. Right. Uh, step two is, what are the risks against those assets? Right. So who's trying to attack them and, and why? What is the profile of your attacker? And understanding that is also extremely important, and lots of examples. Step three is, is how well does the security solution mitigate the risks? And this gets back to stuff we talked about at ID cards or uh, arming airplane pilots. You know, how well does the security that we're proposing actually defend us against what the risks are? Now, see, uh, that's the one I think people don't really ever ask that question. <laughs> you know, because they go from the first one, what are we trying to protect? Okay, and they jump immediately to, okay, we're going to use this without really thinking, is this really right. going... Is this the right tool for the job? I, mean, right. I, I would say all security solutions have value, none are panaceas. Right. Right. So everything will, will be useful for something, but nothing is useful for everything. And, the, and you need to know, is this tool an ID card? A background check, uh, you know, a bulletproof vest. Is that a good security tool for the risk I'm worried about? Step four, what other risks does the solution cause? And this is real important. I mean, this is a lot of times you install a security measure and you get additional risks because right. just the complexity of a system. And then step five is... Well, let's go back to that. Okay. Like, like the RFIDs, for example. RFIDs is a great example. Uh, yeah. right? you know, we're storing a, a, a chip to make it easier to verify identity, yet at the same time we allow for surreptitious verification of identity. Right. So we are, as we build a security measure, we are adding in securities. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, it's a huge one because this happens so much like with, with biometric inter- information as well. It's like if we're saying, okay, what other risks, what are the privacy risks? I think that's the huge one. Well, and you're... The one thing I really love about you, Bruce, from all your everything I've read that you've written is that you understand privacy. But a lot of times security people really fight with the privacy people because security does not necessarily mean privacy. So if you've got something like biometrics and it can be transferred and it's not encrypted and anybody can use it, think of all of the secondary and tertiary uses that can be made that could be really dangerous for us. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I see it all the time, security versus privacy. You know, there's how much privacy do we give up for security? This dichotomy of security versus privacy. Uh, I say reject that as a, as a false dichotomy. And you, and you know it's true. Burglar alarms, door locks, bulletproof vests. These are security devices that have nothing to do with privacy. There is no inherent trade-off between security and personal privacy. There is always some trade-off when you are getting security, but it's not necessarily privacy. I think the key dichotomy, the key debate in this country right now is liberty versus control. Right. And that's what, that's what we are fighting. That's, that's what's going on. And sometimes security, sometimes privacy is good for liberty, sometimes it's bad for liberty. I mean, give you, the, the example is obvious. We know what it is. Privacy in government, secrecy in government is bad for liberty. Right. For, you know, secrecy in individuals, privacy in individuals is good for liberty. And the question to ask is why? Because it's not obvious why that's true. The reason is the power imbalance. Forced openness in government is good for security because it, it, decre- it decreases the power of government with respect to the individual. It equalizes the power more. It gives us, the individuals, more power of oversight over government. Openness in government is a security device. Right? Privacy in government is insecurity. On the other hand, privacy in an individual is also a security device because it also equalizes the power imbalance between the state and the individual. More forced openness in the individual is what we call a police state, right? It's more government power. Right. And that is an insecurity. Yeah, and privacy has a lot to do with liberty. And I think, you know, and as one who, who focuses a lot on privacy is, you know, that really involves the the ability to control information 
about how it's used about us, right? I mean, isn't that what privacy is all about? The the con- the control of our personal information yeah, to be is. able to you know have choices about how it's used, to be able to give consent whether someone can sell our information, to be able to stop information from being used a secondary use when we give it for primary use. There's you know that's what I'm thinking. Not so much the right to be left alone, like you know like from the 1800s. Right. But, privacy really has evolved. It's not secrecy. It's not being left alone. It's more right. con- more contextual. Right. We're all happy to give away information for a purpose. We tend to object to secondary uses. So I'm happy that you know Amazon sends me ads for books I might like based right. on what I've read and what I've bought and what I've browsed. I mean, that's a useful service. Right. I want to tell my doctor intimate, intimate details of my, my, my health because that is useful. What we object to are the secondary uses, when the exactly. data gets out of our control, when it's used for other things. You know, I, David Brin talks in his book, The Transparent Society, he talks about openness being the norm, that in fact there's a, there's a shared openness, there's no problem. I know your secrets, you know my secrets. But what he misses is the power imbalance. If a policeman stops me and demands the identification, it is not okay, it doesn't make it better if I can see his also. Because the power isn't the same. If I go to a doctor and the doctor says, take off your clothes, and I say, well, you first, doc, <laughs> that's <laughs> not going to work. Right. Right, because it's not an equal relationship. And when you have these unequal relationships, right, privacy is an equalizer, or privacy is an unequalizer. And you have to look at privacy within the context of the relationship. And that's why all these secondary uses are so problematic. Yeah. Let's get back a little bit to, to security, because I think for so many of us, uh, using the computer nowadays, the, the layperson like me, not the person like you who understands everything on the computer, but those of us who are want to use the computer and want to use the Internet and find it has, you know, so many great uses for research and for finding, like, I found you and we could, you know, meet by email, etc. What about feeling secure or being secure when we're using the internet, what can you tell us as laypersons? Well, actually, I, I, I don't, I couldn't do it off the top of my head. I did an essay about a year ago called "Safe Personal Computing," and and I sort of urge listeners to go to schneier.com and just type that into the search window, and they'll find it. And I listed basic things people can do. Unfortunately, they're around the edges. Uh, one of the problems with information these days is that we tend not to control our own information anymore. Right. If you are, you know, one of the people whose information got lost by the VA, uh, you couldn't do anything about that. You weren't controlling it. I mean, there's basic stuff you can do with, you know, have good software practices and good secure practices on the net. Right. But in many cases, we are at the mercy of third parties. And I think that's the big story that, that really doesn't get the same uh, attention that, at protecting your own. Other people have to protect yours. That's, that's exactly that's right. And that's, that's you know, we had talked about, we had, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, Lance James was on our show recently, and we talked about, he wrote the book, what is it, Fishing, Fishing Exposed. Mm-hmm. And he's a security expert, and he talked to us, mm-hmm. and, and what I really liked about what he was saying is that, hey, you know, the consumer always gets blamed. And yeah, if you answer phishing, you know, and you respond to it, and you give all your personal information, yes, then you, you know, you have to take some responsibility for that. But most of the time, our information, like you said, is on a computer, a laptop computer that is not, that has all of our information, and it's not encrypted, or it's sent in backup tapes that are not encrypted, or it's on, right. somebody gets some dirty insider steals it. That is all beyond our control, right, and in Bruce? Some ways, I don't even agree with him that if you respond to phishing, it's your fault. I mean, that feels too much like blaming No, 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 I don't mean phishing no. is your fault because some of it is really authentic looking and, and right and, and, it, and there is a blame the victim mentality and there it's sort is. Of like you know you walk down that street you deserve to get attacked that's exactly. not the way it should work exactly uh, you know we are unfortunately have built our computer systems that these attacks are very sophisticated very clever very subtle and the average user doesn't stand a chance in in, in a sense we've we, we've sold uh, the public a bill of goods you know us in the, in the computer industry we've convinced the world that everybody needs a computer right? my mother has a computer everybody needs a computer at the same time we've made them so hard to use that the average person can't possibly maintain let alone secure their own computer exactly and and, and i think that's a, that's a very serious problem 
It's, it's a meta problem. There's no quick solution. But in fact, we have at the same time made, consu- made computers consumer items and also at the same time made them not consumer items. And the poor consumer is getting slammed from both ends. Exactly, exactly. So we, we have about five minutes left. So I want to ask you a little bit about what do you see as the most important topics that we will have to deal with with regard to security, what's coming up in the, in the near future? Uh, the, 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 uh, the ubiquitous of data. You know, we, we've seen a sea change. You know, we see it in surveillance, but it's sort of a true in, in everything. More and more of our life involves computers. And, you know, we used to go to a store and buy something and pay cash and leave. Now we go to a store and buy with a credit card or, or buy it on a website. We used to throw a quarter into a toll booth. Now we use some kind of easy pass system. Right. And the same thing with, uh, with subways. Uh, right. We used to have phone conversations. Now we have SMS conversations or email conversations. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is m- these transactions, which used to be ephemeral, suddenly leave data behind that there are electronic footprints left after you do these things, that they weren't left before. And as data storage drops to free, as data processing drops to free, right, as computers get cheaper, more and more of this data is being saved, and it's being bought and sold, and, there will be, and it's being used for secondary purposes. And, and you know, this is not due to some big brother surveillance state. This is because companies are for-profit institutions, and this is a potential asset. So we're and, and, government, and government is buying this, too. They're and, buying and that, it from ChoicePoint and LexisNexis and, and, and Axiom. And that's, a, that's the second piece of this. Yeah. There is a natural alliance between government and industry. Right. Data that is illegal for the government to collect, they can buy from companies like ChoicePoint. Right. Data that ChoicePoint can't get themselves, they can get from government. So again, not because of any malicious police state evilness, but because of the natural propensities of the way technology is working, we're seeing this crossover between government and industry. Uh, you know, I've been saying for a while that data is the pollution of the 21st century. Yeah. All processes produce it. It stays around. And how we dispose of it is fundamental to how our society is going to navigate the next 20, 50, 100 years. And you know, Bruce, what's even scarier, which I deal with people who call me all the time, it's that data is not correct. And and, and what's terrifying is, is that you can't even get that data. I mean, there is so much data out on you that you don't even, you know, and it, it's mixed or it's confused or your name is some similar to someone else's or there's identity theft. And you don't even know what is being bought and sold and shared. And quite a bit of the time, it's inaccurate. Right. And correctness only matters in context, right? If you are a marketer and you're going to buy a database of people who like to go to Hawaii, and let's say it has a 20% error rate, right? The data is really bad. You don't care that much. It's 20% extra charge uh, for your marketing effort, right? You can budget for that. But if you are the police and you are basing investigations on this data, a 20% error rate is completely intolerable. Well, worse yet, what if you're the victim that someone is passing about intervi- in, you know, information about you that, is, that they're right. making decisions about you for a job or your reputation in right. the community? Right, and again, it, it depends on context. If I get an ad for Hawaii vacation that I don't need, I mean, the, the, the cost of that error is minimal. Right. But right. If I get denied a job, denied housing, there was a, a story a few weeks ago that a gr- uh, in a British database, a couple of thousand people were incorrectly flagged as criminals. Right. And they were denied housing and employment based on it. You know, that's an extreme, you know, even though that might be a couple of thousand out of, you know, 40 million, that's a big deal because the data is being used for a, a purpose that requires extreme accuracy right. as opposed to a, a highly inaccurate purpose, which might be telemarketing. Right. And so when the, when the government is buying these big, you know, files from Axiom, LexisNexis, ChoicePoint, and all these big data brokers, and, and, the, and those companies are not verifying that this data is correct, then we've got, you know, information about us that's out there that could really destroy us, that's literally. Right. That's right. And, and this is why I call data the pollution problem of the current century. You're right. Well, we might, okay, Lloyd is giving me the high sign that this is about time to end, but I want to tell you, Bruce, you did a fabulous job. We, we, I hope that you'll come back again, and I don't know if you're writing another book, but we'll have you come on and talk about your new book, 
Right now we um, have uh, Beyond Fear, which is by Bruce Schneier. And Bruce Schneier is a author. I love security guru, security expert. Pri- he's also a privacy expert, and he's been joining us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Bruce. Thanks for having me. And we'll have him again. You've been listening to Bruce Schneier, who is um, the CIO of counterpain.com. You can go to his website and see a lot of his writings at Schneier, that's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R.com. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, KUCI.org. I'm Mari Frank. I'm your host with Lloyd Boshoff of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. here at KUCI. Thanks a lot, Lloyd, and join us next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.